We're going to open your Bibles to Matthew 5 this morning, because after some time camped out in the Beatitudes, we're finally ready to move on and continue progressing through Christ's Sermon on the Mount. We arrive next at Matthew 5, 13 through 16, which is the source of two of the best-known metaphors Jesus gave on the church. We hear them often. It is salt and light, where he tells us, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. We're to be salt and light. You've heard these, but, but I wonder if you know what they mean. These metaphors help address a key question. What is the church's relationship to the world? How should Christ's disciples relate to the society around them? Christians throughout church history have answered that question in vastly different ways. You know, one side of the uh, pendulum is the escape response. Some believe the world is a, a very bad, dark place. It is to be avoided at all costs. On the extreme end here are monastics. The, the world is, is evil. It's, it's corrupting, godless. <clears throat> Far better just to retreat into wilderness, live in seclusion, and, and seek God all by yourself. Other Christians don't outright abandon society. They still have an escape mentality. They prefer living in a Christian bubble. All their friends are Christians. They only let their kids play with church kids. They keep interaction with unbelievers to a minimum. They never reach out. Some likewise go like soft Amish and they throw out their TV. They unplug the internet. And if they listen to radio, it, it better be Christian radio. They refuse to vote. They don't engage in the happenings of the state. I mean, why bother? It's all going to burn, right? And these are the Christians prone to buying that one-year emergency supply kit of food and just hiding in their bunker as things get really bad outside, just waiting for Jesus to come back. Now, there's another side of the spectrum of how Christians relate to the world. It's, it's the engage response. Many believe the world is not to be avoided, but engaged. But this likewise takes many forms. Some go the extreme and take the route of total condemnation. And the main way they interact with the world is just by announcing judgment on it. This would describe the, the members of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, which picket military funerals just to announce God's judgment on the land. Others are not so aggressive. They want to win the world. And so some, like Christian theonomists, believe it's, it's their mission, their mandate to Christianize the world. They want to see as many Christians in politics and power as possible so as to, to see righteous laws govern the land. And elsewhere on the spectrum of engaging the world are those who opt just, just to blend in. They, they brand themselves as being positive. They, they want to reach the world, but that doesn't happen when you offend people, right? <clears throat> so they aim to reach the lost by becoming like them. Seeker-sensitive churches run this playbook where the church's culture just continually adapts to the world's culture that they might just welcome the world right in. So, like I said, from, from engage responses to escape responses, Christians have answered this question of, of how we should live in this world, how we should relate to this world quite differently throughout church history. And none of these were hypothetical. These are all real, even today, real responses of how we should interact. Who has it right? Which of these, if any, describes the right way we as Christians, we as the church should live in this world? This is a huge question. It's been asked from the very beginning of the church. I mean, right after Christ ascended and the church began, they're, they're wondering like, like what, what do we do now? How are we supposed to live in this hostile world? But thankfully, the Lord did not leave without giving his church clear instructions he told us what we needed to know. He told us how to live. 
And throughout the New Testament, you find such instructions, but as is often the case, it's here in the Sermon on the Mount that we find the most condensed yet potent forms of Christ's teaching. It tells us exactly what we need to know through a pair of powerful word pictures, and that would be salt and light. How do you live in the world? Just be salt and light. We need to uncover what that means, but let's first just read this passage. In case you're not familiar with it, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Let's read that now. Christ goes on to say, Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, the Sermon on the Mount here, it's all one message. These verses are flowing right out of the Beatitudes. Jesus began by expounding on the character, the essential character of a disciple, saying this is who the Christian is. They are poor in spirit. They mourn over their sin. They're meek. They seek after righteousness. And relating to the people around them, they're merciful. They're pure. They're peacemakers. But as we found with the last beatitude, as much as you would like to live at peace with all men, not everyone wants to see and hear Christ in you. And some might persecute you for the righteousness you seek and that the name you serve. And it will certainly look different in different ages, but for those who, who will follow Christ on his way and, and to uh, seek first his righteousness, they can expect some degree of persecution as the darkness always hates the light. Now we learned last time with the, with the last beatitude how and why such persecution actually comes with God's blessing. Still though, it's, it's not fun and you can see how some might be prone to therefore escape the world. I mean, right, if, if the world is going to hate us and persecute us just because we follow Jesus, why not just like leave the world, flee? Why shouldn't we just move to the desert and live out our days in peace? It seems to make sense, right? Self-preservation, flee harm. But no, retreat is not given to us as an option because the Lord has a purpose for us in leaving us in the world, in the midst of a hostile and dark world. He calls us to live in the world that we might reach others with the good news of the gospel. And yes, while it is true that some might see that the righteousness of the Lord in our lives and persecute us, others will see that same righteousness and, verse 16, glorify your Father who is in heaven. Come to salvation. So we find that while the, the last beatitude told us how the world will largely relate to us, now Christ is telling us how we should largely relate to the world. The Beatitudes help define the character of the Christian as a member of the kingdom of heaven. But now as we live still in this world, Christ is, is next going to show us well, what we are to do, how, how we should function. Christ wants his church to be like an outpost of his kingdom in a hostile land, a type of embassy of the kingdom of heaven in a dark world, representing the Lord and his ways. And so we don't have the option of closing up shop, 
and just retreating to the wilderness. The Lord has given us work to do until he returns. And that has a lot to do with being salt and light. What Jesus says here isn't complicated. He proves to be just the master teacher as he takes two of the most familiar things to us ever and uses them to teach serious spiritual truth. Every household in every nation has used salt and light probably daily for the past 2,000 years. In one form or another, we still do. There's a power to the simplicity of Christ's teaching here, but we still need to cut it straight because many a modern reader has has taken, uh, or rather has mistaken what Jesus means by these word pictures. And since Jesus doesn't go into great detail explaining how we are to be salt and light precisely, some have taken liberty in their interpretation and, and wandered off. It's never our intention to fit scripture to our will or, or our preferences. We just want to study the text, its context, and find out what the Lord meant by these word pictures. And that's what we want to do this morning. Just what are Christ's marching orders for his church in its relationship to the world? What does it truly mean for us to be, to function as salt and light in this world? That's what we aim to figure out. And this morning, we're, we're just going to camp on the salt, the first of these, what it means to be the salt of the earth. Because this one takes a bit more effort to unpack. We all know what salt is, but you, you may not know how they thought of and used salt in Christ's day. We need some time to explore this carefully. So let me just help outline our time. I'm going to give you five questions to answer on the church as the salt of the earth. Five questions to help us answer how the church is the salt of the earth. Just kind of make our way through this. First, what is Jesus saying about salt? First question we have to ask, what, what's he saying about salt? In verse 13 again, you are the salt of the earth. I mean, everyone knows what salt is. It's been used by humans everywhere for all time. We take it for granted today, but in the ancient world, salt was a valuable commodity. And it was scarce. Salt mines were as valuable as gold mines. Some civilizations traded gold for its equal weight in salt. Many Roman roads were built for the salt trade. Many wars have taken place over salt. Also, the word salary comes from the Latin word for salt. And legend has it that some Roman legions were paid in salt. And that's where the phrase comes, uh, we get the phrase, worth his weight in salt. Now, why was salt so valuable? Well, one, for one, it was scarce, but another reason is it had so many uses, so many valuable, vital uses in, in civilization. That makes us wonder, though, like, which of those uses does Jesus have in mind when he's telling us to be salt? He says, you are the salt of the earth. You know, it's a big question. What, what exactly does he mean by that? Because salt had a lot of uses back then and still does. The trap that many fall into is just taking their modern lenses and using them to, to read into this passage or thinking about this just from our 21st century perspective. So, for example, how do we use salt today? What's by far our, our number one use of salt? It's easy, just to flavor, to flavor things. Salt is found in every kitchen, in every home. It's on every table of just about every restaurant. You don't have to ask for it. They know you'll need it. It's already there. And it's there for one purpose, to add flavor. Salt 
improves the taste of otherwise bland food. I know that saying about a restaurant when they put salt in all their tables, they're expecting it to not taste good maybe, but... But if we were to read today's primary use for salt back into the words of Jesus, well, you would come away thinking that he's telling the church to be those who add flavor to the world. And some have actually suggested this interpretation as if Jesus wants the church to make the world a more exciting place. As if, in a way, we're, we're to be the life of the party. We are to keep the world from de- being dull or, or bland. And I'm all about Christians contributing great art and music to the culture and, and seeing beauty in all things, but it's just not what Jesus means here. Now, I should say, to be fair, you read your modern English transi- translation, you might find support for this view in the rest of verse 13. You know, look at verse 13 again. It says, you are the salt of the earth. In the NASB, it says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? So you see, he mentions salt becoming tasteless. Doesn't that support the idea of taking salt as giving flavor? Well, not so fast. I don't pretend to know Greek better than these faithful modern English translators, but this is not an open and shut case. The verb translated tasteless here is moraino, which is from the Greek word moros, and that means foolish. And this word is everywhere else translated as foolish. The word moros is from which we get the word moron. It speaks of dullness, something that's not functioning as it should. So when a person is mentally malfunctioning or when they're spiritually dull, we would say they're foolish. Look how Jesus uses the same word in verse 22 of Matthew 5. It says, but I say to you, everyone that who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, that's the same word, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. This word is everywhere else translated fool or foolish. So there seems to be more going on here than just talking about taste or or salt losing its flavor. By the way, this word in Greek nowhere else refers to something losing flavor in any ancient literature. So what exactly does Jesus mean if he's not talking about salt that has lost its taste per se? This word does not explicitly refer to tasteless salt, but really it's just salt that's not functioning as salt. Salt that's not acting as salt, which is otherwise worthless. And so I would favor the the NIV, which says salt that has lost its saltiness, its quality of being salt. Jesus is talking here about salt that's not doing what salt is supposed to do. And so then the real question we have to ask is, what what was the primary function of salt in Christ's day? What would have have immediately come to the mind of the disciples when Jesus said this, in in this cultural uh, context in which we find the scriptures? Yeah, back then, they used salt to flavor some food. But first and foremost, by and large, salt was used for what back then? Preservation. Preservation. We've lost touch with what it means or how to live, I should say, before electricity. But, you know, today you go to Costco, you buy way more meat than you can eat in a day. You plan on preserving it to eat for weeks to come. And how do you do it? It's easy. Throw it in a bag, throw it in the freezer, you're done. I mean, it will be kept from spoiling for many weeks. But, you know, before the 1900s, that was not an option. 
before 1900, if you wanted to eat meat, you really had two options. Eat meat that had been freshly slaughtered, like still, still beating almost, like it had just been slaughtered. Or you're eating jerky. You're eating meat that had been preserved, any type of what we would call today jerky. How did they preserve that meat? Just, just with copious amounts of salt. And that's what made salt extra valuable before refrigeration. Salting meat does two things. It prevents the growth of harmful bacteria and it aids in the drying out process. And the result is naturally preserved meat that won't go bad. The ancient Egyptians salted fish and that enabled them to trade them hundreds of miles away. All throughout the Middle East, they traded their fish. And today, people still use salt in this way. We were able to go to Spain a couple years ago, and lining the streets of Spain are little mom-and-pop shops, little delis and bakeries, and prominently displayed in just about every window are these huge quartered legs of pig, because ham is like the national food of Spain. It's a delicacy, especially Serrano ham. And from early Spanish history, people would pack fresh hams and sea salt, hang them in the rafters, and then one or two years later, one or two years later, they'd be ready, fully cured, thinly sliced. It's a delicacy in Spain. Just add salt. Again, this was the primary use of salt in the ancient world. Adding flavor was nice, but keeping food from spoiling literally enabled civilizations to flourish. And so what is Jesus saying about salt? I believe he primarily has in mind that preserving function of salt, keeping things from decaying and spoiling. Now, with this in mind, you should already be able to see where Jesus is going with this metaphor. But before we get there and connect those dots, let's ask a second question. Number two, what is Jesus saying about the world? Now, what is Jesus saying about the world? Christ's message in verse 13 is for the church But in his message, he's at the same time indirectly saying something quite clear about the world we live in. If we are the salt in this metaphor, and if Jesus does have in mind the preserving function of salt, what does that then say about the earth? That would make the earth the decaying meat in the metaphor. And this world is rotten, it's prone to spoil, it's decaying. This fits the parallel with what Jesus says in verse 14. Everyone agrees these two statements are are parallel. Verse 14, he says, we are the light of the world. And obviously that implies the world itself is darkness. The problem with the world is not that it's boring or dull or flavorless. The problem is that this world is, is characterized by sin and depravity. Spiritually speaking, the world is dark. And left alone, mankind will only grow darker in corruption. It's like the the second law of thermodynamics applied spiritually. Things proceed from ordered to disordered. Without input, things naturally decay. God made this world perfect, preserved, free from sin. That changed after Adam introduced sin into the world. The human race thereafter became corrupted. The earth itself was cursed. And ever since, the longer man goes his own way, and turns from God's light, the darker he will get, the deeper he will sink into depravity. Social and moral decay are the norm. 
Things will proceed from, from bad to worse until God offers a course correction. And historically, he does that in one of two ways, reform or judgment. And so what Jesus is saying about the world here is that its natural tendency is moral and spiritual decay. Just like the natural tendency of meat is to spoil and rot left to itself, so it is with this world. If forces aren't put in place to stop this, things will get bad. Now, God himself will one day fix this problem for good. In the day of the Lord, he promises to cleanse the earth one last time and to bring in his everlasting kingdom in which righteousness dwells. But in the meantime, this this is just the world we live in. It's a dark and decaying place. But now we're able to put together what Christ is saying here, and it's, it's clear. You start with what he's saying about salt. You put it together with what he's saying about the world. You get what he's saying about the church. And we can make that our third question. What is Jesus saying about the church? Third, what is Jesus saying about the church? You are the salt of the earth. And put together, Christ is saying you, the church, are to have the same effect on the world as salt has on meat. Which is to say, you are to be a type of preservative in this sinful, fallen world. The Lord wants his disciples to be those who stem the tide of depravity and those who slow the the natural process of moral decay. As true Christians multiply and spread in any society, they, they should have the effect of lifting that society from the mire of lawlessness and evil. And you should know, throughout history, God has given mankind three institutions which are meant to have this function. Of, of holding back lawlessness on the earth. Sin is lawlessness. God has put a few checks in there. The first is the family. God himself delegated some of his authority to men to act as heads of household. And husbands are to use that headship entirely for good, to serve their wives, to protect their children. But that doesn't always happen, as some men are themselves evil. So God also delegated some of his authority to a second institution, And that is government. This is Romans 13. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. It says in verse 4, government is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. He says, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And God ordained the human institution of, of government's rule to be another force holding back evil in society, punishing and judging evil. But this institution can also be greatly corrupted. It can suffer its own moral decay where it no longer punishes evil and upholds good, but does the opposite as we're starting to witness in our own culture. And that's when you're in real trouble. But there's one last line of defense. There's one final institution that God has ordained in the world to which he's given some of his authority. And that is the church. Now, sure. Some churches can themselves become corrupt and undergo decay as phony Christians or false Christians come into power, but the true church remains pure and however big or small, they are to maintain an influence on the world of righteousness. They're to be a holy force that keeps a society from just driving off the cliff and plunging into depravity. 
Now, we're under no impression that this type of influence will save the world or save those in the world. But you have to realize that when a nation sinks into unchecked depravity, a profound level of hardness comes over their hearts. They become effectively sealed off to the truth. This is described in Romans 1, 18 and following, where man suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness and denies God, denies his maker forever, habitually. And God, in judgment here below, before the judgment to come, he hands them over. Three times it says he hands them over. He hands them over to a depraved mind to do that which is not proper. God has handed them over in their sin. And they experience a type of hell on earth. It's, it's a type of hardening judgment where God turns a people over to the sin which they have chosen. And so what happens when a society loses all restraint and is just allowed to free fall into sin? That's when you get unbridled bloodshed, like before the flood. You know, the main sin that led to the judgment of the flood was murder. Just, just anarchy. There was no government. It was unchecked murder before the flood. After the flood, by the way, is when God instituted the essence of human government, uh, where, where man, he gives the authority of man to take life of those who have murdered. But also, this is when you get no holds barred sexual morality, like Sodom and Gomorrah, a culture allowed to free fall. And what was the net result? Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, invoking God's judgment as the only course correction. This is also when you get stage five, stage five cancer of religious idolatry. The type that even Israel fell into that involved child sacrifice. God is sovereign. He will raise up and take down nations as he sees fit. And he does that, though, sometimes by turning them over to their sins. For us, this doesn't change our marching orders. But the Lord wants us, though, to be a people who stem this tide and just exert a steady influence of righteousness on society. We represent God's kingdom. And truly, when the church functions as salt like this, society flourishes. Not perfectly. There's no perfect nation, no Christian nation. But when, when the church is the church, society flourishes. I know today it's in vogue to blame Christians as if they're responsible for everything wrong in the world. But it's simply not true. And yes, of course, false or disobedient or phony Christians can become corrupt and given all sorts of evil. That's how you get things like the Spanish Inquisition or Protestant wars. But by and large, only those ignorant of history take for granted all the ways Christ's church has preserved society, has blessed society by being salt. I mean, you say the past 2,000 years, you'll find the vast majority of schools and universities were founded by Christians. It was the church throughout the dark ages that preserved higher learning and literacy and even the sciences. Think of all the great scientists. There's a caricature that Christians are anti-science. It's not true. We're just against the godless presuppositions of science, but we're pro-science. And it was Christians who led all the sciences throughout history in the West. And Christians also preserved life. Almost all historic hospitals were founded by Christians. The church helped the needy from the Red Cross, although today secular, but from its beginning to orphanages, it was the Christians who were helping those members of society that were thrown out, that were never cared for by society. It was the church helping them. 
You have Christians to thank for the rule of law in the West, a righteous law directly tied back to the Ten Commandments. Even our system of government today in America, with its checks and balances, its separation of powers, you can literally trace that system back to Calvin's Geneva. And while some, it's true, some hypocritical Christians propagated the evils of the African slave trade, don't forget it was other true faithful Christians who led the charge to end it, like William Wilberforce and others. It was the church that gave us the Protestant work ethic. It's just a foundation of hard work that leads to prosperity. The church also held society together by supporting the family. Again, we know today our world says the opposite, but the family is the bedrock of any civilization. And the church safeguarded marriage and held at bay unwarranted divorce, polygamy, abortion, prostitution, And then, of course, it would take days just to list all the Christian contributions to culture, from art to music, sculpture to uh, architecture. I mean, just think of any masterpiece, and chances are it is Christian. There's a a Christian behind it. Just in general, look at any nation in the past 2,000 years that has become permeated by Christians, and you will see order. You'll see flourishing. You will not see perfection. Christians are still sinners. And to the degree that they reflect Christ, though, you will see a blessing on a land. You'll see salt at work. And in contrast, you look at even today, Muslim-dominated countries or Hindu-dominated countries. Many of them are still incredibly lawless, dangerous, impoverished, disease-ridden. The weakest members of their society are, are not cared for. They're, they're cast aside. It's just the heart of man decaying, and there's no salt to stop it. It's safe to say that to the degree the true church permeates a society and acts like salt, it will have a positive preserving effect. And this is just meant to be part of our identity as Christ's disciples. Christ is not giving us a direct command here per se. This this is an indicative, not an imperative. He's telling us who we are. But it's clearly inherent in our identity how we are to function. You're salt. So, so do what salt does. The church must act as salt in the earth. It just leaves the question, like, will the church be the church? Will you, Christian, function as a Christian in the world? And if not, what happens? What happens when the church malfunctions? What happens when the church is not salt in the world? We can make that our fourth question. What is Jesus saying about true discipleship? A fourth question. What is Jesus saying about true discipleship? If Jesus is giving marching orders for the church, living in a decaying world, at the same time, he's also giving the church a warning. Because when the church fails to function as the Lord intended, it becomes worthless. And that's what's behind his words in the rest of verse 13. One more time. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? And what's more worthless than salt that isn't salt? And again, we're not just talking about salt that doesn't taste like salt, but I think more fundamental, salt that doesn't function like salt. Salt that doesn't have the properties of salt. You can't use it for anything. You can't use it for preserving meat. You can't use it for de-icing roads. You can't use it for all the things you use salt for. It's just worthless. 
Now, technically speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is stable. It doesn't decay. That's only if you're dealing with pure salt. Back in the ancient world, they most often were not dealing with pure salt. In Palestine, salt was harvested from salt marshes around the Dead Sea. And they contained many impurities like gypsum and other minerals. And the salt itself that was in there could easily dissolve and wash out like after a rain. And so what you had left behind was a white powdery substance, looked like salt, felt like salt, but had very little salt in it. And so it was worthless. And Jesus asked rhetorically, how, how can it be made salty again? He expects no answer because it doesn't have an answer. It, it just, it can't. So what do you do with salt that isn't salt? You throw it out. End of verse 13, he says, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The only application for this type of worthless salt is the dirt path. You can't even put it in the garden because it will kill life. It kills things. It's not a fertilizer. You just use it where you don't want anything to grow. But realize this is still a metaphor. He's not talking about salt here. He's talking about the church. So what's he saying? He's saying professing Christians who don't function like Christians in the world are worthless when it comes to the mission of preserving society. He's saying supposed Christians which don't function, or rather supposed churches which don't function as the church are worthless. They're good for nothing. What Jesus says here anticipates the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end, Jesus will basically ask, who is the true disciple? It's the one who hears all these words and then acts on them. That's the wise man, the true disciple. But the fool, moros, same word for tasteless, the fool is the one who hears his words, maybe even goes to church on Sundays, but then does not act on them. And what we really find here then is an indictment on false disciples, of which Jesus tells us there would be not a few, many. Talking about people who are Christians in name only, just like that salt was salt in name only. It didn't have any salt in it. We're talking about people who claim Christ, but they don't embody the Beatitudes. Christ himself will confront such false believers head on at the end of Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. We know it well. He asks, or rather he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Talk is cheap. Yes, we're saved by faith, but what's the proof of that faith? Doing. And so he goes on to say, he who does the will of my father will enter. It's not the hearers of the word. The doers of the word prove themselves true. What did we read this morning in 1 John 2, 17? He says, the world is passing away and also it's less, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. It's the proof of your faith and your discipleship. Only right for you to ask, are you, are you just a hearer of the word only? Like James says in James 1.22, or a doer. Let's ask then, what, what does it look like for Christians and churches to malfunction as salt? And throughout scripture, from Israel to the church, the influence God's people are to have on the world around them is always tied to their holiness. 
They are to be distinct from the wickedness of the world. Just as salt becomes worthless when it's diluted, so do Christians. And really, it's impure, unholy Christians who do way more harm than good for the cause, for the name. It's the hypocrite who gives the world all the justification they need to write off all of Christianity. Saltless Christians are really of the world. They, they love the world. They love the things of the world, contrary to 1 John 2.15. And in so doing, they lose all ability to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness, pointing them to Christ. I mean, if you're living in as much sin as your unbelieving relative, like what, what impact will you have? If you're swearing up a storm just as much as your coworkers, how are they going to view, view you as any sort of moral authority? If you're busy violating your own conscience left and right, how will the image of Christ in you convict the conscience of those around you? The only real difference between you and a non-Christian is you go to church on Sundays and you give away some money. Why would they ever be compelled to join you? Like what makes you different? Your life is no better. You're no more virtuous, no more righteous, no more like this supposed God. You know, on a corporate level, this is why we, we pick on seeker-sensitive churches. I know it's easy to do, but it, it needs to be said. I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture has cut the parachute and is just in a free fall into depravity, into decay. The family has been abandoned. The government is upside down. And many churches are just saltless. Seeker-sensitive churches, which are, are the biggest churches in the land, they've jettisoned gospel truth and an emphasis on holy living in order to just attract more people, get more of the world in the church. They, they don't want to be salt. When you're salt, it kind of stings. Your distinctiveness might confront unbelievers. It's kind of like rubbing salt in their wounds and it stings. It's going to turn people away and they can't have that. Even though, by the way, Christ turned multitudes away. So these churches have refashioned themselves as sugar. They want to be sweet so as to attract the world. And that often comes by being just like the world. They adapt any and every changing whim of the culture to invite the world in. And so doing, the church loses all moral authority and righteous high ground. The church becomes this, this pointless, powerless social club. People keep going because they want their kids to be raised right, so they say. But as these churches often exude hypocrisy, it actually turns the world against the church way more. And that's where we're at right now. The whole influence of the church on the world depends on you being distinct and different. Not in a self-righteous, hypocritical, legalistic way, but just, just be like Christ. You have to ask though, does the world do a better job of influencing you and corrupting you? Or do you do a better job of influencing the world and preserving the world? Are you like salt or has your own life become so diluted, no one could tell? What Christ says here, it stings us. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It's meant to. He's talking to the church. But you know what? That's okay. We need that. We need conviction. We all fall short in many ways. None of us perfectly acts as this type of salt. But look, while we can't control the church at large in America, let us just be convicted to be distinct, to be different just to be Christ-like in this world. 
And I guess the good news is the Lord can do the impossible. He can make salt salty again. As you yield your life up to him, as you are no longer afraid or ashamed of him or his gospel, be convicted, offer up your life again to be salt in this world. Now, let's ask a final question. Number five is a how. How how do we do it? How should we live as salt? If this is the case, how should we live as salt? How exactly are, are we as the church to exert this preserving influence on the world? You know, there, there's some who might hear all this, everything we're saying, they say, amen. They think the application is to go out into the world and, and try and stop unbelievers from doing bad things by just yelling at them and telling them they're all going to hell. And usually people who respond like this happen to be legalists where half the things they're convicting people over aren't even sins in the Bible. Yes, it's true, salt stings, but these people are just acidic. And this is not how we are to live as salt. Legalism is not the answer. Maybe, maybe legislation is the answer. Christians need to be salt by getting out the vote. Right? We need to elect Christian officials and pass laws that will uphold a biblical sense of morality. We need Christians in, in influential positions of power and leadership that they might keep the train from going off the rails, right? Now, I'm, I'm definitely not going to say this approach is wrong. It's just that most nations throughout history don't even have this as an option. So this can't be the main way we are to be salt. Look, America has been blessed by its Christian roots. We have a system of government that actually gives every citizen some voice, some little measure of influence and authority. That's unlike any other civilization prior. And so, look, you have a vote. You should most definitely use it to check evil, to promote the good anytime and every time you can. And of course, we, we want to see more Christians as lawyers and judges, police officers, school board members, city council members. Of course, we want godly influences in positions of authority. They can make decisions to, to hold the culture's descent into wickedness back. That's a good thing. But at the same time, it just can't be our hope. You're not going to transform a nation through legislation. We look at Texas right now in the news, just passed a ban on abortion after six weeks. That's a wonderful incremental victory in the cause. It was spearheaded by Christian influence. It's a good thing. It will check the widespread murder of infants in Texas. That's an evil worthy to be checked. This is a good thing. But it still does nothing to change the hearts of the people, which is why you see so many viciously reacting against it, that they still need transformation. They still need new birth. At the end of the day, people need not just law, but gospel. So something more is, is, is needed. In a way, it's easy to offer up these big corporate solutions like, yeah, this, this church needs to be more like salt. We like that because it secretly means like, I personally don't have to do anything. This nebulous group called the church needs to do a better job of being salt. But really back to the actual image of salt, you realize it's made up of millions of tiny little individual crystals. And all of those individual crystals functioning as salt are, are what makes salt what it is. If all those individual crystals didn't function, or if a majority of them weren't even salt, then you'd have a worthless salt shaker 
a worthless church. And so what I'm saying is the power of the church really comes when individual Christians just live as Christ in the midst of the world. All of them, at least a strong majority. Like we need Christians just to be Christians in the world, in the public square. Think of the early church. How did the Roman Empire change? I mean, think of the many evils of ancient Rome, like the gladiator games. We often had innocent people who were thrown to their death. They would be torn apart by wild beasts or hacked to death by gladiators, all in the name of entertainment. This was blood sport. People paid admission. So how were those games eventually abolished? Because they were. How was this evil stopped? When Paul got to Rome, did he start signing, you know, getting people to sign a petition to stop the games? They would have gone nowhere because people loved the games. What they needed was transformed hearts. And Paul knew that. So what did he do? He planted churches. He shared the gospel. Christians lived distinct, holy, Christ-like, loving lives. And they spread. They multiplied. They won individual hearts and minds by their testimony. Just little brick by little brick by little brick. It took time. Preserving meat takes time. But 300 years later, the evils of the gladiator games were ended by society. A society that was formed by Christians being salt. And it was just a collection of individual Christians committed to living out Christ in the world. This is still what we need to do. This is a message here telling us not to blend in. People naturally want to blend in because they're scared. The nail that sticks out gets hammered down. When you stand out in your speech, in the jokes you laugh at, in the things you watch, the things you say, in the social issues you support, your holy conduct, even if you're doing it and you're being perfectly kind and loving, some will still hate you, right? Salt stings like they did to Christ, who was just perfectly righteous, but they rejected him, persecuted him for that. And we just learned in the last Beatitudes, so some will do to you. But there's hope because not everyone, that's not the only response we'll get. That's not the only effect we'll have. There is hope. Christ himself, he did not blend in. He stood out as the Holy One of God. His life was a mirror and it, it just inadvertently showed people their sin. And for some, that conviction broke them. They came down before him. They bowed down before him, just sought his mercy. Mercy, which they always found, by the way, as he raised them to new life. That is what the Lord is now doing through his people. That some will see Christ in you and be saved. There's another side to this coin here, and that is to be light. We haven't heard the whole story this morning. There's two sides. You must be salt. You must also be light. And that, that's really the positive side of letting the gospel shine, sharing the gospel. Our greater hope, it's really not just to slow the decay of society and that's it, but to see it transformed, to be, see it reborn in Christ. And we'll obviously get to that in, in next week. But for now, it's enough to meditate on, on how you can be a distinct Christ-like witness to the world. How can you live as Christ, unashamed in public. Just be an individual man or woman of God where just the Beatitudes we study, they just come out of you for, for all to see. Let those in the world witness your transformed marriage 
your set-apart kids, your respectful work ethic, your, your hopeful outlook on life. Let them see your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All the ways you're different. Let them see your humility and brokenness when you sin. Because you're not perfect. Let them see you judge yourself way more than you judge others. But then let them also see your hope is in Christ. Let them see the joy of the Lord. It's merely the witness of Christians being Christians in the world that has this preserving effect. That the church simply needs to be the church. You have to remember, Jesus started this whole thing off with 12 Jewish peasants. But they went on to turn the world upside down. And there's no telling what he has yet to do before he returns. Whatever the case, whether our nation is rising or falling, it doesn't change our mission one bit. As, as for me and my house, as for us and our church, we will serve the Lord. And that involves being a distinct, holy, preserving, Christ-like influence in this world. Let that be our resolve this morning, to be salt, and then, as we'll see next week, to be light. Let's pray together. Our great God in heaven, we give you thanks this morning for your word and for Christ's powerful teaching. We take something so simple, yet uses it to, to teach us who we are and what we must do. And I pray this morning, Christ's words just, just build conviction in our hearts. We all have this, this fear of man. It's, it's in our nature, tempting to hide, to preserve self, uh, to, to blend in, to not be noticed. But when so doing, we can't let the light shine. We can't let the salt preserve. We're called to live in this world while not being of it. And convict us. You're, you need, you'll do as you see fit, Lord, but you call us to be witnesses, to live distinct, holy, loving, Christ-like lives in public that others might see Christ, hear Christ from us, and be saved. This is how you transform the world until Christ comes. May we be busy with this work. May we not shy away from it. Help us to be balanced in how we relate to the world, not shunning it, not hating it, praying for our enemies, just letting Christ be known to them. Work in us. Let this church not be a bunker church, hiding out, waiting for the end to come. But may we be engaged, missional, uh, seeking uh, to let the world know that the Savior has already come, that they too might know and be saved. Be with us, convict us. We thank you for the Savior who saved us from darkness, who prevented us from decaying eternally, who raises us to new and eternal life. We do this for his glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.